Our scripture readings this week are all going to come from the message paraphrase uh, for a reason that will be made clear in a little bit. Um, Today, the first scripture reading is Psalm 126. It is Psalm 126. It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, when God returned Zion's exiles. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. We were the talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives so that those who planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest so that those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. Amen. So our next scripture reading is Hebrews. I'm confused. Sorry, the uh, in the message version, there is no pagination, and I'm confused, so there we go. Uh, Hebrews, tell me again. Okay, I see. Hebrew, sorry, it was very hard to see. Um, so it says, this makes Jesus the guarantee of a far better way between us and God, one that really works, a new covenant. Earlier, there were a lot of priests, but they died and had to be replaced. But Jesus' priesthood is permanent. He's there from now to eternity to save everyone who comes to God through him, always on the job to speak up for him, for them. So now we have a high priest who perfectly fits our needs, completely holy, uncompromised by sin, with authority extending as high as God's presence in heaven itself. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins every day before he can get around to us and our sins. Thanks be to God. Journey through. Our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. They spent some time in Jericho. And as Jesus was leaving town, trailed by his disciples in a parade of people, a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting alongside the road. When he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, mercy, have mercy on me. Many tried to hush him up, but he yelled all the louder, Son of David, mercy, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped in his tracks. Call him over. They called him. It's your lucky day. Get up. He's calling you to come. Throwing off his coat, he was on his feet at once and came to Jesus. Jesus said, what can I do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. On your way, said Jesus, your faith has saved and healed you. In that very instant, he recovered his sight and followed Jesus down the road. The word of God. So most of my mentors... Most of the humans that have spoken the most in my life, I've never gotten the opportunity to meet. You've heard me quote this before, but Stephen King, the fiction author, describes books as a a uniquely portable magic because they have the ability to open up a conversation through time and space between the writer and the reader. It's through these conversations that we tend to grow, tend to learn, tend to see more about ourselves and about others. That's most definitely true for a lot of those that write about the faith. 
And it's most definitely true for how I've personally grown the most in my faith. There are plenty of people in my life that I've learned from and grown with. But there's also plenty of people that I've read and who have impacted me deeply. Heck, our very sacred text is this kind of connection because we have these stories, these letters from these men and women of the faith who have affected us greatly. We have this connection to Paul. We have the connection to the gospel writers. We have so many connections to these folks that are trying to figure out faith so long ago. I say all that because this week we lost one of the, the formative writers that have been a part of Christian discourse for the last few decades. Uh, Eugene Peterson died this week uh, at the age of 85. Um, it was, from what I understand, peaceful. He had some dementia and passed away at his home. Uh, along with writing the message translation, which is what we've read out of for our scripture reading this week, uh, he's written over 30 books covering a number of different topics. Uh, his book on the, the, the book of Revelation, specifically Reversing Thunder, is one that's affected me greatly. It actually made me fall in love with the book of Revelation, which I never thought I would be able to do. Um, I've read a few of his books, uh, but he's even more, even before he passed away, he's been on like a list of stuff for me to read for quite some time. But one of his most well-known books was on my mind as I pondered the gospel text this week. So let's pause and talk about this story for a minute. Jesus and his disciples are surrounded by a huge crowd as they're in the process of leaving Jericho. And a blind beggar named Bartimaeus called to Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this guy. We know his name is Bartimaeus. We know that that name is Aramaic for son of Timaeus, which further would mean son of honor. So it's really just ironic, I guess, when you're a blind beggar and you're a son of honor. But I think ultimately his behavior is honorable. So it makes sense. Because Bartimaeus had faith, and he's calling to Jesus and asking him to heal him. This is where the story becomes interesting to me. We talk a lot about the faith of the individual that's being healed. But in this, we see the response of the crowd. It says in here, they hushed him, they shushed him, they told him to sh shut up, ultimately. They said, they, sternly, really, and they said, we don't want to hear from you. Why would this group of people do this? Why would those that are following Jesus, possibly even including Jesus' disciples in this number, respond to a man in this way? Did they think that if Jesus hears him, then he's going to heal Bartimaeus and not have time to heal them? Is, did they think that, that it's a first come, first served, and the squeakiest wheel gets the grease and this one loud blind guy is going to ruin it for the rest of them? Maybe, but I doubt it because they're already following him. They've already seen healings happen. I don't understand how in the world they think that this one is going to mess anything up. Do they think that supplies were limited? No. Whatever the reason is, it can be boiled down to the one trap that we fall in as humans all the time. They realized that somehow or another, they were on the inside. And this blind guy is on the outside. And the inside might have grown a lot in Jericho, but it's kind of hit its breaking point. They think, for some reason or another, that if the inside gets any bigger, it won't really be the inside anymore, like a, like a water balloon that's fit to burst. 
we keep adding people, especially this blind homeless guy, pretty soon there won't be an inside anymore. It'll just all be outside. We'll be alone again. We won't be special. We won't be the good ones. At some point, there has to be a line where exclusion is the right response. And I'm sorry, Bartimaeus, but you're just on the other side of that line. Exclusion is baked into us as humans, as social animals. At the very basic level, we want to know what group we're a part of and what groups we're against, naturally. Because you can't have us without them. You can't have inside without the outside. This is a problem, as we've been talking about already, that is very evident this week as folks who have decided that there is an us and there is a them for one reason or another, for race, for religion, for ideology, for identity. And they've acted on it because the natural response to an us versus them is a dehumanization of everyone outside that line. And the natural response to dehumanization is violence being easy, is hatred being acceptable. So on some level, obviously not on a violence level, but close, these followers of Jesus are no different. They've let their tribalism blind them to Bartimaeus' need. Now we've been talking a lot here recently on Wednesday nights and in Sunday school about what we should do for those in need. And on this past Sunday, we talked about uh, what, how to respond to homeless folks. And one of the things I suggested was that maybe if you don't have the money to help somebody that's homeless, but to, to pay attention to them, to say hi to them, to make them feel connected. Because I don't know about y'all, but my default response is to make sure my window's rolled up, to make sure my hands are on 10 and 2, and to make sure that my eyes are boring a hole into the brake lights in front of me. So I tried to live that this week. And that's, I, I work in Midtown, so I see four homeless people a day at minimum. And so as I was parking, I was at uh, the corner of Lamar and Airways, and I saw this guy, my, hand, my window was rolled down, my music was on, I had my hand out my window, and I caught eyesight with this guy, and I smiled and waved. And y'all, he smiled back. He had, a, he had a black plastic bag in one hand, and he had a sign in the other. And when he smiled back, he dropped the sign and picked up the black plastic, black plastic bag so I could see it clearly, and not, never stopped smiling. Reached into that bag, and he pulled out a bottle of Febreze, you know, like the, the stuff to make your couch smell good. And he just started dancing in a circle and spraying the Febreze in the air. It was the weirdest moment of my week, far and away. But it was also maybe the weirdest moment in my whole life. But I could tell he was just excited to be seen. He was just excited, I guess, to smell good on some <laughs> level. Um, but, but, but in that moment, he felt apart. He felt a, as a person in that moment. We all, no matter what it is, have a line somewhere in our head. A line that separates us from them, whoever them may be. And when life is good, when life seems right, we want them far enough away to keep that goodness, to keep that balance. Because whenever something complicated, when something other comes into the situation, we don't know how to respond, and we respond with nervousness and with fear and worry. This is even more so the case when we don't feel confident in our own place in the story. Now, when I was a teenager, 
I was that kid, you know, whenever there's a group of friends, there's one kid who's constantly trying to prove that he's allowed to be there because everybody else is a little cooler, a little funnier. That was me. I was always the one who felt like the, the, the tag along, the, the, as, like in the youth group, I was a little bit younger than all the other kids that I tried to hang out with. And I was always kind of nerdier than the rest of them. So it was really hard for me to feel confident in my place in the group. And because of that, I had a couple of things. I was very protective of my group of friends. I wouldn't let anybody say anything about anybody. I was also very protective of my place in it to the point where if there was anybody that even smelled less cool than me, I kept them as far away as possible because I constantly wanted to look like I was allowed to be there. I felt like I didn't belong. So when I was brought in, I felt like it was a fluke. I felt like, like they, they clearly didn't know who I was. So them letting me be their friend was like a, like a, like a math error of sorts. Like, like I got an extra check from the bank and, and if I spend it, then they're going to know it's there and take the money away from me kind of thing. This is constantly this desire to be one of the cool kids and it made me one of the meanest kids to those that weren't. So I see myself in the crowd who's keeping old Bart as far away as possible because they're scared of what it means in their place. So what does Bartimaeus do? I love this. I don't know if y'all know who I married, but I love it when someone's headstrong. <laughs> and Bartimaeus just keeps yelling. And that's exactly when Jesus hears him. And that's exactly when Jesus stops in his tracks and responds to Bartimaeus. And he's not just responding to Bartimaeus, he's responding to those around him. So how does he respond to those around him? He does not stop and chastise them. He does not stop and join in goading the blind guy. But he does what Jesus is constantly doing. He lives by an example, and he gave out an invitation. He lives an example by seeing and hearing this man, not trying to shut him up. But he gives out an invitation to his followers by having them be the ones that go and get him. Those that he makes them change their tune. He makes them go not in disdain, but in joy and in acceptance. He says, go get them. And he, they show up and they say, it's your lucky day. You won the Mega Millions. It's you. Come on down. So he says, go and get him. And in that moment, the line disappears. This misstep didn't end their following Jesus, but rather it became a milestone, a moment of change, an opportunity for growth, and an opportunity to be more like Jesus. So when Jesus tells them to bring Bartimaeus forward, and they do enthusiastically even, Bartimaeus comes up and Jesus asks him the same question we heard him ask James and John last week. What do you want from me? What would you have me do? But Bartimaeus isn't looking for VIP status. He's not looking to sit on the right side. He's not looking to be the number two. All he's looking for is to see again. Or to see, period. We don't know whether he was born with this or not. And Jesus is happy to oblige. So when I think about the crowd, when I think about how often I've been in crowds like that, I think about Eugene Peterson. 
One of Peterson's most famous texts was a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. This is the phrase he used to define the process of sanctification and discipleship, the, the, the part of Christianity where we become more like Christ. Peterson's point isn't that this is often in our instant society just a, a switch that gets turned on. We don't sign a piece of paper and then suddenly we are more like Christ, but rather it is a long walk in the same direction. It is a journey. It is just the continual day in and day out obedience. What Peterson is saying, that we become more like Jesus by slowly walking the way of Jesus, by slowly following the example that Jesus set out for us. Peterson says at one point, quote, the way of Jesus cannot be imposed or mapped. It requires an active participation in following Jesus as he leads us through sometimes strange and unfamiliar territory and circumstances that become clear only in the hesitations and questionings, in the pauses and reflections where we engage in prayerful conversation with one another and with him. It's in this that I see the crowd telling Bartimaeus to shut up. I see them struggling with their walk on how in that struggle, in that hesitation, Jesus shows them the way. I see them walking away from that crowd changed. I see them walking away from that day, handling beggars, be them blind or leprous or without a dime to their name, differently than they did that day. Their inside just got a little bit bigger. The line went a little bit further away. This kind of growth, this kind of change that often happens so glacially that we might not even notice it. But the thing about walking a trail set before you is that every now and then you can turn around and you can look and you can see where you were. You can turn around and look and see without even realizing it that you've made it miles. So I have this morning ritual I don't even think Alicia knows about this. Uh, it's been really cathartic for me over the last few months. I've basically quit posting on Facebook for this very reason. You see, Facebook has this section called On This Day, where each 20, like, so in the day, you can look and see. So today is October 28th. Today's my sister's birthday. So as I was looking at it today, I saw my being rude at my sister about her getting older. So basically, it just shows me everything I've ever posted on Facebook on October 28th. So I go through, and each morning I, as I wake up and I look at it, I feel this wave of embarrassment of things that I said 7, 10, 12 years ago. And I let that embarrassment wash over me for a second. And then I delete everything that was embarrassing because I don't want anybody to see that because people could go back and look at all the embarrassing things that I've said if they tried hard enough. And that feels really good too because it's like that embarrassment was for me. And I get to see how much I've grown. And I also get to see how I really should talk on the internet less often. It's a win-win situation. One of the things that Eugene Peterson did was write in a way that was, able, he was able to pastor pastors. He was able to, to help folks who were leading through their personal walks. Because so often pastors don't really have much of somebody talk to. 
I haven't gotten a chance to read some of his pastoral stuff yet. Um, but all the folks that I was reading this week after he passed were talking about how much of an influence he was on their ministry, how he was the pastor's pastor to them. As I think about all that this week, I can't help but think about how much we can encourage one another on this walk, how much we can say, hey, I saw who you were seven, 10, 12 years ago, and I see who you are now, and I'm thankful for the work that God is doing in your life, and I'm excited to see who you will be seven, 10, 12 years from now. I saw who you were, and I see who you are now. We can share a glance of our former selves. We can share not just who they were, but we can share who we were and how God has worked in our lives and offer encouragement in that way as well. We can often see the work of Jesus in each other's lives. If only we, we look and we pray and we get to know each other a little bit more. How can we follow Jesus and walk along each other's side as well? We can follow Jesus and walk the journey with each other as well. Because it is in that walking together that we have encouragement, that we have the strength to carry on, and we also have the, the understanding of how much good can come from it. Let's pray.